Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe, and I'd like to tell you about a great podcast called Philosophical Disquisitions. It's hosted by John Danaher. On the show, he talks to many experts about the interaction of technology and humanity. He has a ton of great episodes, and it's easy to find. It's on Apple Podcasts, or you can find it simply by typing Philosophical Disquisitions into Google. It'll come right up. We really love this podcast, and in fact, we love it so much that we're going to give you a little sample of what you'll find there. The following episode is republished from Philosophical Disquisitions. I hope you enjoy it. So my guest today is Shannon Valor. Shannon is the Regis and Diane McKenna Professor in the Department of Philosophy at Santa Clara University, where her research addresses the ethical implications of emerging science and technology, especially AI, robotics, and new media. Now, Professor Valor received the 2015 World Technology Award in Ethics from the World Technology Network. She has served as the president of the Society for the Philosophy of Technology. She sits on the board of directors for the Foundation of Responsible Robotics and is a member of the IEEE Standards Association's Global Initiative for Ethical Considerations in Artificial Intelligence and Autonomous Systems. So uh, welcome to the show, Shannon. Thank you, John. Happy to be here. So I invited you on the show today to discuss a book that you published a couple of years back with Oxford University Press called Technology and the Virtues, A Philosophical Guide to a Future Worth Wanting. So this is a very rich and, dare I say, magisterial book, which presents a distinctive and comprehensive approach to the ethics of new and emerging technologies. As you put it yourself, the book argues that in order to prepare properly for our technological future, we need to, quote, cultivate in ourselves collectively a special kind of moral character, one that expresses what I will call the techno-moral virtues. So I'm hoping we can explore some of the ideas and arguments from your book over the course of our conversation. Now, we cannot hope to do justice to the entire book, so I thought it would be best if we focused on the general theory underlying it and maybe a couple of concrete applications of that theory to some new technologies. So let's start by looking at the theory and the motivation behind the book. So let me just ask you, why did you write this book? What motivated you to write it? Well, it really had a lot to do with my experiences in the classroom. I began teaching courses uh, very early on in my career at Santa Clara University uh, in the ethics of science and technology and the interactions between science, technology, and society. And one of the things that I noticed around 2005, just as Facebook was uh, becoming a phenomenon, just as students uh, were beginning uh, to rely heavily on texting and uh, the, the capabilities that smartphones uh, would eventually deliver, I noticed that my students were exceedingly anxious about this broader issue. They saw it as something that touched them personally. It wasn't for them uh, a, a conversation or uh, a set of questions that was of purely academic or intellectual interest. It was really something that was becoming a personal and psychological and even existential uh, concern for them. 
because this was a generation that didn't grow up with smartphones. This was a generation that didn't grow up with Facebook. Uh, these were new capabilities for, for my students at that time. And they were acutely aware of how radically these technologies were changing their communication habits, the uh, patterns of their relationships, the way they dealt with challenges in those relationships. And they were very uncertain about the meaning of those changes and which of those changes were positive and how to adapt to a social landscape that was being rewritten under their feet by these technologies. So there was a lot of excitement and enthusiasm, certainly among my students for these technologies, but also this undercurrent of anxiety. And I realized that the kinds of academic questions I was asking about how these technologies were changing society, how they were changing us as people, uh, were incredibly acute and urgent questions that really needed to be addressed. I'm just curious, you mentioned that you started teaching students at the dawn of Facebook and students who hadn't grown up with these technologies. They weren't, so to speak, digital natives, as the term is sometimes used. Um, and so they had a lot of anxiety because they noticed the changes. Has that anxiety dissipated in the intervening years when the new a cohort of students who have grown up with these technologies have come on board, or are they? is it more acute than ever before? You know, it's a really good question, and I think I've seen a, a kind of interesting flow. So you had this first generation uh, that had these anxieties, and then I would say around 2010, so five years later, 10 years, uh, sorry, five years later, uh, you, you had um, students who were a lot more blasé about these things, uh, who were much more comfortable with these technologies, uh, had been using them all throughout high school, uh, sometimes uh, longer than that, and uh, had a tendency to view ethical questions about these as the kinds of questions that, you know, old people yelling at clouds would ask, if you know the reference. So it was a brief moment where uh, these questions, I think, were less urgent uh, in my students' minds. And then that quickly disappeared, and we went back to a different sort of anxiety. Uh, and that happened when social media environments began to become uh, very uh, politically fractured, very much a mix of people uh, on there with pro-social motivations and mix of people on there with very anti-social motivations. And uh, the students had a, a new set of anxieties then. Uh, so this was around 2012, I would say and certainly continuing into the present. And I've noticed my students today are actually much more ambivalent about technology than any generation of students that I have taught. Uh, they, they use technology, they rely on it, but uh, they don't always trust it. Uh, many of them are much more selective about their technological habits. And, uh, and I think they have lost some of that naivete that the, the earliest generations of digital, digital natives had. Yeah, no, I, my sense is that there has been kind of a similar ebb and flow, but um, you know, I haven't got any concrete data to back it up. But I, I think that's broadly coheres with my own experiences of it as well. Um, but, you know, in in the book, you you formulate the problem that we face with new technologies in a particular way, uh, maybe a slightly more academic framing of it. You you talk about the problem of acute techno social opacity. 
So could you maybe explain what that problem is and maybe give an example that illustrates how it arises in practice? Sure, I'm happy to. You know, this is funny. I really hate philosophical jargon. I try to write in ways that are as jargon-free as possible. I think jargon rarely serves a purpose. But in this case, I really couldn't think of a better way to describe what I was trying to get at. So you have this very awkward phrase, acute technosocial opacity, uh, that I'm using to describe something uh, that's not uh, technically very difficult to wrap your uh, mind around at all. And I, I can illustrate that with a couple of examples. I'm going to illustrate it with one example from the past and one example that uh, is taking us into the future. So let's start with a past example uh, of this phenomenon. So 10 years ago, I'll just pick that number somewhat arbitrarily, could have been 2000. To, uh, but I'm going to say 2008 as, as the date of this. Uh, so 10 years ago, in 2008, everyone was making confident predictions about what the future of the internet and especially social media would bring. Some of those predictions were positive. Some of those predictions were negative. But none of those predictions involved a Donald Trump presidency combined with a Brexit leave vote mediated by Russian use of our reliance on social media as a Trojan horse to poison domestic political discourse. And this totally unpredictable outcome has now completely changed what the future looks like, uh, not just in the United States and the UK, but globally and in every single sector. Uh, now we're facing trade wars. Now we're walking back commitments to environmental protection and sustainability. Uh, I could spend an hour just making a list of the radical changes that we are living with in 2018 that no one had any inkling of in 2008. Now, of course, we can never predict the future, right? The future is always uncertain. But the phrase acute technosocial opacity uh, is saying that the kind of uncertainty about the future that we're facing is far more acute and to a far greater degree than anything that we've seen in the past. So the uncertainty is amplified, uh, and I think it's amplified by orders of magnitude. And the reason for that is the way that new technologies interact so rapidly with complex social and political systems on unprecedented scales. So social and political systems have always been complex, have always been challenging to predict, and technologies and their development have always been uh, somewhat uh, difficult to predict. But now the technologies move and change so much more quickly and spread uh, so much more widely and rapidly that all of those complex interactions are ramped up on uh, new orders of magnitude. And this increases the total complexity and uncertainty of the system by orders of magnitude. So what we get is radical technosocial complexity that produces radical technosocial uncertainty. Uh, and that's what I'm getting at with this phenomenon. So when you looked forward, uh, standing with a good knowledge of the internet and society in 2008, uh, you might have thought you could have at least an, a guess at what the outline of the shape of the future would be. Uh, but in reality, most of us had no clue. And any guesses we would have given in, 20, uh, in 2008 would have been completely off. So that's an example. Now I'm going to give an example of the future. So think about artificial intelligence. This is a technology that, must, much like the Internet, is likely to reshape every aspect of our lives. 
everything from how we're hired and evaluated at work to how we interact with our families and friends at home, to how we receive medical care, to how our militaries operate. And yet the specific course of the technology, how fast it will advance, in what ways, and the shape of its effects on our institutions and our lives is really unknown. Even AI researchers don't know where the technology is going. Add to that the uncertainty of the interactions of all those unknown effects with the unknowable effects of all the other technologies that are still developing, including social media, uh, including biotechnology, and then add the rapidly changing state of the physical environment, and then add to that the rapidly changing political and cultural systems that have been destabilized by these technologies, which are still reeling from the opacity that I mentioned above, and then combine all those uncertainties and multiply them together. Then you have a future which looks almost completely opaque, impossible to even guess at. And yet we have to plan for that future and prepare and act and try to do all of that wisely. So here's the question the book poses. How do you prepare yourself and your society? How do you plan and act wisely for the future of human flourishing when that future is so opaque. Yeah, I, I don't know if you agree with this framing of it, but when I was reading it, this is how I thought about it. Maybe it's more of an analogy as opposed to, you know, a, this is exactly what you're saying, but so it's more like a metaphor. But there are lots of people who talk about technology in terms of accelerating change or exponential change. So, you know, people like Ray Kurzweil will say that there have been these exponential growth curves in various forms of technology over the past half century. And we're only really just at the start of that upward tick in the exponential growth curve. So we don't know really what the future holds. And in some sense, his model or framing of the singularity is that it's a, it's a prediction horizon that once we reach that point, we just won't be able to predict or anticipate the future. So your the problem of technical social opacity is that it, it you know, this, these exponential growth curves in technology, the changes that they're rendering or bringing on society, are they're happening so quickly and so rapidly that we, we can't anticipate and understand the future. I mean, change has always been a problem for societies, but the changes that are happening now are just happening at a pace and a scale that are unprecedented. That's the, the way I was understanding the problem. So I, I viewed it as the problem of the moral problem of accelerating change, in a sense. Yeah, but I think what I would say here, just to push back on Kurzweil, is that he falls into the trap of thinking he knows where the technology is going, right? So he makes specific predictions that the rate of acceleration of uh, artificial intelligence will be exponential. And we actually don't know that, right? Uh, it may be a sigmoid curve. It may be asymptotic. We really don't know uh, what is going to happen with this technology. And so specific predictions about things like a singularity, I think, are part of the problem. Uh, they don't display, I think, the right kind of intellectual humility about this kind of opacity, because they make assumptions that uh, the technology is going to behave and develop at a particular rate or with a, with a particular uh, kind of uh, slope. And we really uh, don't know that. Yeah, no, I think that's fair that he makes very specific claims and they are all often kind of morally loaded claims as well about them. this being a beneficial sure. trend. Exactly. Um, yeah, where you were kind of pointing towards a more radical form of uncertainty with the, the, the changes in technology. Um, Absolutely. 
And I'm neither a techno-optimist nor a techno-pessimist. And I think both of those attitudes, again, fall into a trap of thinking that you can see where technology is taking us, right? You can see that it's taking us somewhere negative or you can see that it's taking us somewhere positive. And I prefer to say we don't know where it's taking us. uh, So let's make some decisions to try to steer it uh, in in the way we want. Uh, That doesn't mean we we can get what we want. Uh, but at least let's make an effort uh, to steer this uncertain situation uh, in a direction that would be desirable, all things considered. Yeah, but, but your book is focusing specifically on the kinds of moral norms or attitudes we should take towards technology. And so you view technosocial opacity as a particular kind of moral problem. So again, like my way of understanding this was that you know, the kinds of moral duties or expectations that are placed upon us are contingent upon the social context in which we operate and the things that are within our power to do. And technology changes both of those things quite rapidly. So that was kind of how I understood this as a, as a moral problem, a distinctively moral problem. Is that what you were thinking about as well? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Right. Uh, Because one of the things that uh, we have to do is think about how our actions affect others, right? That's a sort of pretty basic morality 101 principle uh, that it that it matters how your actions uh, affect other people, and so as soon as the future becomes opaque, uh, we're we're put into a real moral quandary uh, because we have to act. Even not acting is taking action. So there's there's no possibility of not acting, uh, and yet uh, it feels like we have to uh, walk forward uh, wearing a blindfold, uh, and that seems like a very dangerous thing to do for ourselves and for the other people who are affected by our choices. So what I'm trying to figure out is, and I think I, I use this metaphor in the book, uh, we, can't, we can't unblind ourselves, but what we need is some sort of assistive support uh, to, to help us remain upright as we're navigating in, in this very uh, opaque environment. Uh, so I use the analogy of a blind man's cane, right? Uh, we, we need some sort of moral technology, if you will, to help us navigate through this rapidly changing, very opaque landscape uh, in a way that makes us less likely to, to fall down and be unable to get up. Okay, so I mean, don't we have this already to some extent? So, you know, we have long-standing moral traditions, moral theories that purport to give us very abstract principles that don't are not context-specific or context-dependent. So, your Kantian ethics tells us that we should act in such a way that the maximum of our will could be universalizable, or utilitarian ethics tells us that we should act so as to maximize pleasure or minimize pain, or mm-hmm. some some variation on that theme. And that's not there are different forms of utilitarianism, but that's roughly the kind of principle or maxim that they say we should follow. These these abstract moral principles are not saying anything to a particular kind of technological society or a particular moment in history, they are uh, atemporal in a sense, at least that's what they they seem to be. So why can't they provide us with the kind of guidance that we need? Yeah, that's the temptation is to think that, okay, well, then we need our moral principles to become more and more abstract because we don't know what the context we're going to be in will look like. And in fact, I'm arguing that uh, this actually takes us in the wrong direction. So look at utilitarianism. It's a form of a moral theory that we call consequentialism. And any consequentialist theory basically says to know what the right action is, you need to be able to anticipate 
what the consequences of your actions will be in the long term. For utilitarians, it's the consequences in terms of pain and pleasure that we care about, right? But that's precisely what acute technosocial opacity prevents us from knowing. It prevents us from having even a reasonable guess in many cases about whether the net sum of a particular course of actions uh, will be a, an increase in happiness or a decrease, an increase in pleasure uh, for all those affected or a decrease uh, net when you consider the interests of all those affected. It, it makes that calculation essentially impossible to do. So utilitarianism only works if you have some sense of what the long-term consequences of your actions will be. And that's precisely uh, what these uh, new uh, shifting technological changes prevent us from having. Then if you say, okay, well, then if we don't know what the consequences of our actions would be, then we should just go to a rule-governed system, uh, something like uh, the Kantian ethical framework that you mentioned, right? But these kinds of principles, like uh, the principles of Kantian uh, ethics, are so abstract and rigid that you either have to force them into contexts where the rules don't fit or don't make moral sense. So, for example, in the, in the Kantian case, we know that when you try to universalize certain principles like the prohibition against lying, uh, you end up with these cases that really look uh, like they should be exceptions to the rule. So in, in Kantian ethics, we have the notorious inquiring murderer case, right, where it seems like I have a moral duty to lie in order to protect uh, the higher interests of, of an innocent life and in order to not enable a, a violent murderous act. So I, I think we, we either end up in a situation where the cases where we're going to have exceptions to the rule multiply uh, potentially to such a degree that the rule becomes useless, or uh, you keep the principle rigid uh, and abstract uh, in such a way uh, that it becomes unhelpful. So you mentioned uh, the Kantian principle being, uh, can I will a world where the principle that I'm about to act on uh, will be universally adopted? Uh, so in the Kantian case with lying, right, you say, can I will a world uh, where no one lied? And then you say to yourself, yeah, I could will that. Uh, and then you, uh, you ask yourself, could I will a world in which everyone lied to spare themselves difficulty? And you think about what that world looks like, and you realize uh, it, it's, uh, it's a contradiction. Lying itself would have no function if people didn't believe lies, and people wouldn't believe lies if everyone lied. Uh, so you, you try to will that world, and it sort of explodes on you. It becomes an irrational thought. And so in the Kantian theory, that's how you know uh, that it can't be morally permissible to lie, because you can't universalize it. So in the book, I say, okay, now let's try to do that with this, some of these emerging technologies. It becomes impossible to formulate the problem and envision the world in any coherent way. So you look at something like social robots and you say, OK, can I will a world in which everyone uses social robots? The ability to imagine what that world is going to look like and whether it's going to be a coherent one or not, uh, one which we can envision as stable and functioning, that's precisely what acute technosocial opacity prevents us from doing. There are almost infinitely many worlds we could envision uh, in which social robots were in wide, even perhaps universal use. It's the how of the use and the when and the for what purposes 
that really allow us to build up that world. And right now we can't do that. So you end up in a situation where the application of the principle becomes impossible. And then a third difficulty with rule-based and principle-based ethics is that if you uh, recognize that complex technosocial systems are going to generate uh, competing duties and what we call wicked problems, where there are trade-offs between moral duties and moral values uh, that can't be avoided, cases in which you can't possibly meet the moral requirements of all of the rules uh, that you want to respect or all of the duties that you want to recognize, what do you do then? This has always been a weakness of rule-based systems, the problem of competing rules or uh, conflicting rules or conflicting duties. Uh, but uh, the more complex the social landscape, uh, the more of those kinds of conflicts that are going to get generated. So it only weakens uh, the appeal of these kinds of theories further. Okay. So, I mean, what's the solution then? I, guess, I mean, the clue is in the title of your book, which is Technology and the Virtues. So you, you're favoring a, a virtue ethical approach, but what does that consist in and why do you think it is a better solution to the problem of techno-social opacity? That's a great question. So uh, I would also not frame it as a solution. As I, as I said earlier, I think that creates an expectation that the moral challenges we're facing are ones that we can solve like a math problem. And when you solve a math problem, the problem goes away. And that's not something we are going to be able to do. So I think... The best way to think about this is we are facing some unprecedented moral challenges that aren't going to go away, aren't going to be solved, uh, and are going to be with us for uh, the remainder of the lifespan of the human species on this planet. So uh, that is assuming we remain you know, a, a technologically advanced civilization. Okay, so the problem's not going away. So the best we can hope for is a moral theory or approach, perhaps is the, is the better word, uh, that will equip us with resources for navigating that challenge on an ongoing basis, managing it, uh, responding to it in ways that are more likely uh, to, uh, to succeed than to fail. And I think virtue ethics offers us some very helpful resources that are likely to increase our resilience in the face of this kind of challenge. Uh, and it's precisely because virtue ethics is context dependent, uh, because it's context sensitive. It's all about being intelligent in the moment, in the particular situation, in the context that's facing you, and dealing with the challenges as they come at you in real time. So let me just say back up a little bit for the listeners who might not know what virtue ethics is and just very quickly give the, you know, the, the one minute description. Virtue ethics relocates the ethical control from the action out there in the world or the abstract rule that you're going to apply in the world to the person themselves, uh, to the moral character of individuals and communities. And that's actually something that is still more in our control. We can't really control the future in any fine-grained detail. Uh, we can't control the uncertainty. We can't make it go away. But we can control, to some extent, 
our own moral character and the traits that we cultivate in ourselves and in our communities. So we can control to some extent how honest we are. We can control to some extent how humble we are. We can control to some extent how compassionate we are, how just we are in our behavior towards others, uh, how much self-control or self-discipline we can exercise over ourselves. Those are things that remain somewhat in our control. And that's where the power of virtue ethics comes in, by allowing us to build up our own capabilities to deal with complex and novel ethical challenges. Yeah. So, I mean, if I could come back here, I mean, one way that I thought about it when I was reading the book, and this could well be an analogy that you used, I, I can't remember exactly, but, you know, when I'm educating or teaching students, so I teach in a law school, so, I, you know, I have two different approaches I could take, I guess. I could view my role as being one of just telling them what the legal rules and cases are that are exist at the moment and you're mm -hmm. building up their store of knowledge of of the law as it currently exists but the problem with doing that is that well the law is going to change and there are developments all the time there are new laws being passed so once they go out into the world and become lawyers they won't have the information that's relevant to that new world so the alternative approach that I could take as an educator is to try and develop their capacity to think like lawyers to understand how legal systems work to engage in critical legal analysis to develop legal arguments that are persuasive and that is a a more more like a kind of building a certain virtue a certain approach to behavior that they can control in many different contexts so that seems to be the same kind of approach that you're advocating here when it comes to dealing with this problem of of technosocial opacity is that that's exactly right you teach people to solve problems that they haven't seen yet. And that's a, an approach that's valuable, as you point out, in all kinds of educational domains, right? Uh, you see, for example, a lot of business leaders today saying, I wish that we were hiring college graduates who knew how to solve new business problems instead of just applying strategies uh, that they've been uh, told to memorize uh, or approaches that they've been told to memorize because uh, that isn't what's going to advance our business. What's going to advance our business is understanding how to uh, create strategies to solve new problems that we haven't encountered yet. And that's exactly the sort of thing that I'm calling for uh, in the moral realm. Figuring out how to cultivate human beings that can solve moral problems that haven't arrived yet, because that's what we know about the future. If we know one thing about the future, it's that it's going to present us with increasingly more moral problems that have a new shape, a new form, a new context. So the best thing we can do uh, for the future of human societies, for, for those we care about, uh, for the future of human flourishing in general on this planet, as well as the flourishing of the other creatures uh, with whom we share this planet, is to begin to do the work of cultivating people who are uh, effective moral reasoners, especially in complex and rapidly shifting environments. And that's precisely what virtue ethical traditions uh, talk about and tell us how we can uh, uh, accomplish that goal. So in the Aristotelian tradition, and there are multiple moral traditions that I talk about in the book, uh, not just in the Western uh, moral tradition, uh, but 
the Confucian moral tradition can be seen uh, as, a, as a virtue ethic. Uh, I argue in the book that uh, a, a strong element of the Buddhist uh, tradition can be seen as offering a virtue ethic. And there are many more examples I, I could have offered. But the, they all uh, talk about uh, some analog to what Aristotle calls practical wisdom. Uh, the Greek word is phronesis. Uh, but practical wisdom is the virtue. It's actually an intellectual virtue that operates in the moral realm. Uh, that helps people adapt their their moral habits to new and unprecedented uh, moral situations and challenges. And that's what our focus needs to be on. I mean, you can see the argument of the logic behind the position you're outlining there, but there, it seems to me that there's a, a potential danger here as well with focusing on the virtue ethical traditions. And as you say, you go into a, quite a number of the historical traditions in the book and you cover them in, in great detail. So we won't really get a chance to do justice to that depth of discussion here. But isn't there a danger that some of these traditional virtue ethical approaches are too wedded to a particular kind of historical era or historical set of traditions? You know, sometimes when I read bits of you know Confucian philosophy and the kinds of things that they recommend, it, it seems to speak to another era, speak to another time. And maybe, maybe to kind of fold this into an objection that one could make to the virtue ethical approach and how it applies in an era of rapid technological change is that one of the things that is assumed in a lot of these traditions is that there is some kind of fixed human nature that is mm -hmm. unchanging. But of course, that's one of the things that might also be changed by technology if we follow you know, transhumanist or enhancement ethics, that, that our actual, our fundamental nature, what make, helps us to flourish as embodied beings may no longer hold true in the future. So uh, you know, how do yeah. you deal with that issue? So I'm going to break that into uh, two challenges here, both of which uh, are, are really uh, excellent points to raise. Um, but I think they, they need to be dealt with separately. So the first challenge is, how do you get beyond the fact that every virtue ethical tradition has been rooted in a particular culture, uh, most of which uh, have long passed into history? And how do you get over uh, the, the problem of virtue ethics always being rooted in one particular cultural or historical moment? So uh, this is a common objection to virtue ethics, that it is backward looking, uh, that it is rooted in uh, norms uh, that are no longer active for us today. And uh, in the book, one of the central arguments that I, that I make is that that uh, is only half true. So it is true. Uh, that the Confucian uh, virtue ethic is not the one that we need today. Uh, it is true that the Aristotelian virtue ethic is not the one that we need today. That is not to say, by the way, that there might not be insights from those traditions that are still valid for us. I certainly am not suggesting that there's nothing in those traditions that we could carry forward usefully. Uh, I, I certainly would reject that. But as a whole, uh, those aren't uh, the ethical frameworks or the uh, ethical uh, visions of the good life uh, that we need today, precisely because they were adapted uh, to their own historical moment and their own context. But that's the whole point of virtue ethics, is that it's context adaptive. So any virtue ethic must be speaking to its time and not to uh, a time that no longer lives for us. And it must be speaking uh, to its community. And one of the points that I make in the book is that uh, perhaps for the for the first time, in, uh, in human history, uh, we really do have technologies uh, that are tying us together on a, on a global scale uh, and creating the necessity 
for thinking about moral problems uh, at the species level. That's never been something that we were absolutely required uh, by the challenges of the, the moment uh, to do. It was something that many philosophers have had as a noble ideal. Uh, but now it's actually a practical necessity. We have technologies that are changing the planet, uh, technologies that arise on one continent and immediately reshape the chances for flourishing on another. So that means for the first time, we need moral resources that do not speak simply to one culture or one region. That doesn't mean uh, that we need a universal moral theory that we are all going to agree to. Uh, but it just means that we need some, some resources uh, that we can all call upon together and some concepts that can resonate across uh, local, regional, and cultural lines. And that's something I argue in the book that virtue ethics uh, can provide. And where it can do this is in the, what I argue in the book are some shared resonances across different cultural and historical traditions of virtue ethics that say quite similar things not about how we should live or not about what the ideal person is like, because you're correct that, you know, what the Confucian describes as the ideal social arrangement is certainly not what I think we should adopt. Uh, what the Confucian or Aristotelian uh, describes as the ideal human being is not, I think, uh, what we should adopt today. But nevertheless, what they describe as the method and the means by which visions of the good life are constructed and negotiated, uh, the means by which uh, people cultivate their character and strengthen it for the challenges of their time and culture, the methods by which we improve ourselves are actually strikingly similar across these traditions. So in the book, I identify a set of moral practices that I argue are actually remarkably similar across these traditions, and which I think are still useful for us to adopt today. Uh, practices about uh, developing self-control, uh, uh, being able to manage uh, one's own emotional and intellectual life. Practices that help us uh, to be more empathetic uh, and understanding of the circumstances of others. Uh, practices that help us to judge how far to extend our moral concern outside of our immediate and uh, natural love for ourselves and our families. Practices that uh, tell us uh, how to begin to govern our own moral development as opposed to simply passively being shaped by our environments and the authorities operating in those environments. These are all practices that are talked about in remarkably similar ways uh, by virtue ethicists and philosophers operating at uh, completely unrelated historical moments. And I think that's a sign uh, that these might be some deeper truths about the human animal uh, that we can still count on today in order to prepare for our future. Okay, but so we'll have to end up the other problem. Yeah, the, sorry. yeah, exactly. That brings us to the second thing, because I'm appealing to some relatively stable notion of human nature, right, that allows for a fairly stable set of techniques uh, for improving uh, ourselves on an individual and social level. And you have raised the point that, but isn't our nature being changed by our technologies and by our new environment? And this is a, a really interesting problem that I raise at the very end of the book in the 10th chapter. I do think that if we were to radically change human nature, uh, that 
this would create a, a potentially fatal objection to the approach I recommend in the book, uh, because it's unclear that those shared practices of moral self-cultivation would still work. But one of the things that I think we have to consider is that human nature has actually, in, in one way of thinking, uh, remained more stable uh, than we would like it to, uh, harder to change. Uh, than uh, than we think. And that's precisely why, for example, human beings are still behaving like tribalistic fools, even when over the course of human history, it's tended to do nothing but bring us pain in the long run. And certainly, given our increasing interdependence on a, on a sort of global scale, it's clear that tribalistic, xenophobic, nationalistic kinds of impulses are less likely uh, to secure our happiness and our flourishing in the long run uh, than ever before. And yet we are still falling into these traps. So in one sense, I want to say, yes, it's true that human nature can in principle be changed, but our evolutionary adaptation uh, to uh, an environment that's no longer living is so stable that it's actually becoming a problem for us that we're not able to adapt our nature as quickly as perhaps we, we ought to, to the context we're in. So I think what you're posing is a really interesting theoretical challenge. And those uh, philosophers who and futurists who have thought about using technology to tinker with the brain, to uh, create you know, machine-human hybrids uh, that would be liberated from our biological heritage, those prospects uh, would create a problem for the theory that I'm advocating. But right now, those prospects are firmly in the realm of science fiction. Uh, most of the attempts to actually implement uh, those kinds of radical changes to the human brain uh, have, have ended in disaster, in side effects, uh, medical and psychological, that are uh, quite grievous. Uh, and I think it's going to prove harder to change human nature than we think. So uh, I'm not really worried about that in the long run. If anything, I'm worried that we won't be able to improve our human nature uh, rapidly enough uh, to meet the, the unprecedented global challenges that our species is facing. So I don't know if I want to go into this because this could open another can of worms, but it seems that there's an interesting tension then in your theory between the, the attempt to, and this is something you mentioned, to develop a virtue ethics that is adapted to the kinds of technological infrastructure that we've currently, we have created, this globalist mm -hmm. um, virtue ethic. And there's other, there's other things that you mentioned that are in, in, intrinsic or inherent to the technology as well. And then also the, the, the idea that virtue ethics should be consistent with what's, uh, what helps us flourish given our nature. So the, the, mm -hmm. there could be an interesting tension between those two parts of the virtue ethical theory, it seems. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think there's something like a, a kind of a reflective equilibrium that we have to seek where uh, we are preserving those aspects of our moral character that uh, allow us uh, to meet new moral challenges, the aspects of our moral character that do make us practically wise, those are the ones that we want to cultivate and uh, keep from degrading. And we certainly want to be sensitive to any impacts of technology that seem to be degrading those capabilities in us. So we want to maintain a certain kind of core stability in human character with, with reference to those capabilities that support practical wisdom. And yet, as you mentioned, I'm also saying that we need uh, to become flexible and adaptive enough in our character 
to respond to these rapid changes. And I don't think that that's a contradiction, uh, but I think you're right that it is a tension, and I think it's a tension uh, that demands uh, a constant effort uh, to seek a reflective equilibrium between the stability that we need in order to build the resilience and flexibility uh, that that the world demands. Okay, but the conversation to this point has been a little bit abstract. So let's try and go into a maybe a concrete application of this theoretical framework. Now you Absolutely. you go through four of them in the book, but I I think it's four anyway. Um, but I, I we won't have a chance to go through all of them, and we may just focus on one of them, which is social media, new social media. So there's there's a chapter about the impact of new social media technologies on virtue and maybe some of the threats or t- that it poses to to certain virtues, particular virtues. So, you know, to go back to one of the things we mentioned earlier on, I think that this is something that in 2018, most people, I think, are fully aware of a lot of these threats. So they've become much more salient in the past couple of years. You know, it's certainly in the post-Donald Trump era, I think people are mm-hmm. less sanguine about the benefits of social media. But just to going to play Mark Zuckerberg for a moment, if I can sure. take on that role. You know, it could be argued that new forms of social media, and that term embraces lots of different technologies, But and we can kind of get into some of the nuances of that in a moment. But broadly speaking, they actually could offer a lot of potential for moral development. You know, we can connect with more people, we can look at the world more through their eyes, we can share experiences. This might be exactly what we need. These globalist social media platforms might be exactly what we need to build the global virtue ethic that you are talking about. Um, so you know, where, where do the problems arise specifically? Is it, is it with particular manifestations of the technology or is it with just the technology itself? Is there something inherent in this kind of globalist mm-hmm. social media that is, is problematic? I, I, I think... You raise an excellent question. I, I emphasize in the book that social media does have the power uh, to enrich uh, and enable the cultivation of the important virtues uh, that we need to develop in order to flourish. So I'm certainly not anti-technology and I'm not even anti-social media. Um, and as you point out, I think we could point to lots of ways in which social media has advanced Uh, some of our moral capabilities. So, for example, uh, if you look at the way uh, that the Me Too movement uh, or uh, before that, the It's It's Better movement online um, or uh, the Black Lives Matter movement um, have in many ways and and often through the ability to share different kinds of stories, to to share video recordings of things that are really happening to people that, that are Usually invisible uh, to uh, to those who who benefit from you know the the protection of social privilege, uh, the ability to tell certain kinds of stories uh, to uh, to an audience that uh, there was no platform uh, to tell before. These are capabilities that have allowed many people to, if you will, uh, to, to 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 borrow a, a a term from from philosophy to awaken. Uh, from some of the dogmatic slumbers uh, that, that humans naturally fall into, right? Where we think we know what the world looks like. We think we know how other peoples think. Uh, we, we think that we understand who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. We think we understand how the world is supposed to work. And one of the things that um, social media has done for many people, not all, but for many, is to check some of those assumptions uh, with depictions of reality that previously were inaccessible to us. 
And uh, many people have sort of had to reorient their perspective on the world in a, in a really uh, helpful way uh, because of the stories that social media uh, has shared with them. So I don't deny any of that. But we also have to look at all the other things that social media has been doing. And one of the obvious examples here is the way that social media seems to overall have diminished our ability to discern truth from falsehood, um, to uh, be able to reliably evaluate and critically evaluate uh, sources of information. Uh, and for many people, what social media has done is simply fueled uh, their tendency to uh, live in a world of their own intellectual construction, right, or their own emotional construction. Uh, to believe in the world that they want to exist, the world that reinforces the beliefs and values that they already hold. And the fact that technology uh, has enabled this uh, is, again, an interaction effect. It's something that is interacting with a tendency humans already had. It's not something that uh, technology created. It's something that social media has fed. And so when you talk about whether these are problems intrinsic to the technology, I want to say, no, they're not intrinsic to the technology. They're an interaction effect between the technology and its affordances. And this is a term we use in philosophy to talk about uh, the ways that a technology pr provided in a particular context to particular kinds of users will make certain kinds of actions more inviting and others less inviting, right? So to afford a behavior is to make it easier or more inviting. And so that's what's happening, is that social media are affording uh, some vicious habits, uh, especially around uh, the veracity of information. So I talk in the book a lot about the virtue of honesty, and I call it a techno-moral virtue. And I, I define it there as a, a kind of respect for truth in information environments, especially in new media environments. And today we're seeing uh, that that capacity has largely been degraded, uh, not for every individual, for some individuals, they've used new media to actually increase their respect for truth. Uh, but for society as a whole, I think the net effect, we can say, uh, has probably been negative. And that has to do with certain affordances of the technology that could have been designed differently. Structural incentives in the systems that are rewarding a behavior that undermines honesty, uh, that undermines the respect for truth. But you can design those platforms differently with different structural incentives if you choose to. And yeah. that's what needs to happen. Yeah, I mean, if I could just maybe come back in. So it seems to me that, yeah, like it is the affordances within the technology that create the problem, but those affordances are driven by an underlying business model, perhaps in, yeah. in cases of Facebook or Twitter or services like that. And it's Absolutely. that it's more that business model that's that's the problem here. That the attempt to you know maximize the amount of time that people spend on these devices that they engage, sorry, not devices on these platforms, and engage with the media or content that's presented on them in order to push ads towards them, and that this is what's creating a lot of the tensions or problems. I think it certainly does make sense to say, well, of course, this is uh, these incentives are coming out of the business model. But it's important not to fall into the trap of imagining uh, that there was only one possible business model uh, that a social plat media platform could have adopted, right? Uh, and even if you say, okay, let's just take the business model as given, let's just say that it has to be ad generated. 
which by the way, it didn't have to be, right? Even if you admit that uh, you're going to have a business model that's ad generated, uh, it didn't have to take the particular form that it did, especially if you look at the long-term health of the platform. So that's been all over the media in the last couple of days, right? That um, Facebook and Twitter have both suffered some slowed growth that has in large part been an effect of the choices they made years ago uh, to care about exponential growth and engagement as their, as their only metrics. So they chose those metrics and now uh, they are paying the price of the unsustainability of those metrics taken alone and the incompatibility of those metrics taken alone with the flourishing of uh, those new media communities. So people aren't joining Facebook as frequently and aren't engaging on Twitter as frequently, in part because they see those environments as having become toxified. So even if you just operate from a business perspective, it's very short-sighted to think only about narrow metrics like engagement and user growth and not think about the quality of the experience uh, that uh, people are having on your platform and how that experience is shaping the broader social conditions around them. So now you have a bunch of users saying, wow, I think Facebook and Twitter have been instrumental in creating a political environment that's dysfunctional and making me miserable and affecting my life negatively. Well, then why would that user want to spend more time on that site that they now associate uh, with a degraded uh, civic and political environment? Even if you take the business model as the goal, which I, I actually don't think should be the sole goal, even for economic reasons, I think social health has to be ultimately what economies serve. But even if you just narrowly look at the business model, uh, mistakes were made. And I think they're, they're realizing that now. Uh, and there's a reason why their, their user base and, uh, and their stock market price aren't where they want them to be today. Yeah, so, I mean, that, that point is interesting. But let me kind of come back against it to some extent. So, I mean, I agree that there were choices that were made in these business models. that it, They didn't have to be that way. But they did follow those incentives that they did follow that pathway so you could argue that we're now you know trapped in a certain kind of moral equilibrium or immoral equilibrium that is not conducive to virtue and the question is how do we get out of that so i'm wondering you know what what is the solution is this something that you think that to an extent the market will correct itself that's maybe part of the thinking behind some of the comments you made there is that well the users are themselves rejecting it because they view it as being toxic. So is this something that is just going to write itself over time? Or it, it, does this require intervention at a political level? I mean, how do you, or alternative I think it models? What absolutely it requires uh, intervention, not just at a political level, but also uh, at an individual level, right? Um, and that's in part what you're seeing. Uh, so I, I really, you know, want to resist language like the market will correct itself. Uh, the market is uh, a phenomenon that's driven by the choices of uh, individuals in the system and various sort of uh, power structures that make the uh, market function in a particular way. Those power structures can be changed either from the inside or by uh, regulatory action. And individual choices within uh, the, the market uh, can change, which is precisely why you're seeing uh, the, the stock prices drop, why you're seeing 
uh, user uh, bases uh, slow in their growth because individuals are making those decisions. So uh, it's very important, I think, to remember that everything we see happen in a market is a is a matter of human agency. And there are many people whose interests uh, it is to make us believe that humans have no power over markets and that markets operate by some sort of natural law or magic uh, that we don't control. And this is uh, an extremely, not just false, but poisonous belief that, uh, that, that some people are uh, constantly perpetuating. Uh, even Adam Smith, you know, when, when we talk about capitalism, right, Adam Smith pointed out that markets would sometimes fail and need intervention uh, from the public sector in order to uh, prevent or, or correct those failures. And so uh, I certainly don't think uh, that markets can be counted on to magically correct themselves. Uh, but I think that human agency is something that uh, we don't lose. It's something that we surrender. And so the question is, what actions do people need to take? What actions do organizations need to take in order uh, to correct our path? Uh, I think there are many individuals making those decisions in more intelligent ways today. I think there are many organizations. Uh, one of the things I'm happy about being in Silicon Valley is that I no longer uh, have to go around, you know, sort of knocking on doors saying, can we talk about ethics? Uh, instead, the, the companies and the, and, and the people within those companies that, that make the decisions are actually saying themselves, hey, we need to talk about ethics and we need to not just talk about it, but we need to figure out how to implement it in the organizational culture, uh, how to actually uh, embed it in our, in our production systems. And I'm very encouraged by those developments. Uh, of course, you could say, oh, they're only doing that because uh, they need to from a, uh, from a business perspective, but that's fine. Yeah, the business does need to be sustainable. That needs to be morally, socially, and politically sustainable. Uh, and uh, and I think we're seeing the companies starting to realize that now. Yeah, I mean, if if business incentives can align with what is moral, then surely that's a a win win situation in, a, in a, to an extent, anyway. Let me just say, look at history and ask yourself what happens uh, when market mechanisms and incentives begin to be incompatible with a social and political stability and the flourishing of people that the market serves. What happens? Revolution happens pitchforks and torches and, you know, uh, uh, beheadings, uh, you know, people expect in the long run uh, markets to be good for them uh, and, and good for their communities. And it's in the interests of business to ensure uh, that markets uh, do not stray too far from that central function. I mean, can we just bring this back to an individual level, though? And if I can put a question to you bluntly and possibly provocatively, but just want to see what you would say. As an individual, what's the virtuous thing to do at the moment? Or is there an easy answer to this? Should I be using a Facebook? Should I be deleting it? Should I be using it in a particular way? What, what's sure. the answer? Well, you're not going to like the answer because the answer is true but unsatisfying. And the answer is it depends. As a virtue ethicist, right, going back to that, it's always about the context of the decision you're making. And uh, just to give you an example with Facebook, right, you, you see a lot of people pushing uh, a campaign to delete your Facebook account. Yeah, and yet which, are, which I just did. I, well, I deleted Facebook from my phone. I still have an account, but I don't use it very sure. often. So just I, I recently made that choice. So that's something I'm thinking about. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I still have my account and I still use it, uh, but I took the app off my phone uh, so that I would use it less. And that's a choice that I made. And there are people who are deleting their accounts altogether, and that's a choice they're making. And I think 
for any given individual, there probably is a, a choice that makes the most moral sense. But I don't think that there is a one size fits all answer. Uh, for many people, Facebook is a tool that that now enables them to have, for example, uh, connections with a community of people that they depend upon for their health. Uh, for some people, it's the only way that they can communicate uh, cheaply and effectively uh, with their family members. Uh, for other people, it's instrumental, uh, an activist uh, network uh, that has grown up on Facebook and that would be at this point simply impossible or um, that the uh, obstacles are immense to porting over to another platform. And uh, I think there are trade-offs for everyone who's thinking about these kinds of decisions. So for some people, the changes they need to make might be just much more about individual self-control and discipline and putting incentive structures in their own lives to reward those kinds of acts of self-discipline. So finding ways to reward themselves for using social media in a more disciplined and uh, sensible way. So for some people, that means, uh, you know, installing you know, software that blocks you out from social media during a period where you're working on a book or uh, working on an important project. Uh, for other people, it might be changing the, the setting on their phone so that uh, the apps go to grayscale and so that you're not triggered by those sort of colorful notifications that have been shown to be kind of more, more tempting for the brain to activate. There are lots of different ways, and I don't think that there is any one-size-fits-all answer. I think practical wisdom precisely is this ability to look at your own situation, look at the situation that your community is facing, look at the choices that are actually available to you and the trade-offs involved with each choice and make a decision that you can rationally defend that, that makes sense uh, given the whole constellation of values uh, that, that, you, um, that you're beholden to, uh, to live for. Okay, I mean, so one of the examples that you raised there about, you know, something that I need to, or an individual needs to take into consideration when using a technology um, is maybe using technology itself to uh, develop or to pr protect against a problem that was initially created by the technology. So just to give a concrete example of this, one of the things you discuss in your book is this idea of the virtue of self-control. And one of the problems with social media is it provides this instant gratification, this new information, new likes, new retweets, and they're exciting and addictive to us. And that prevents us from being able to control ourselves, to focus and concentrate on things. So a lot of people, to solve that problem, they use an app or a service that prevents them from accessing social media. So the example you use in the book, and something that I use a lot myself, is an app called Freedom, which mm -hmm. you know blocks you out from the internet or from certain websites you can tweak it how you how you like uh, for a certain period of time i use that i have it on a schedule so it, you know it automatically blocks me out of the internet every day from 6 a.m until 12 noon i, I deliberately chose 6 a.m because it's i'm never awake at that time so it, it it kicks in before i actually even wake up and i have a chance to prevent Very the app, prevent Very the clever. app from um yeah, so adjusting the time schedule. So I don't have a choice as soon as I wake up. Now, mm -hmm. like, am I actually cultivating self-control by using that device? Am I, am I developing the virtue of self-control? Or am I, am I just, you know, in, basically enslaved in some sense by this technology? I'm not really developing my own agency and self-control. I, I feel conflicted about it sometimes. So what, how should I feel about that? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think it's an empirical question that does depend somewhat on the individual. Um, we could answer this very easily if we had a way to tell whether compared to before you used these apps, 
are you more able to exercise your own uh, control in situations where the app isn't a factor? So let's say you're uh, out to dinner with your family or on vacation. Is it any easier for you simply to, you know, turn off the phone or ignore it or uh, not click on a, on a notification badge? Is it any easier for you to do that than it was uh, before you used, you know, an app like Freedom? So I think that's an important The answer is question. no, I think. Um, okay, then, then I would say in, in some sense, it, um, it probably isn't cultivating greater uh, self-control uh, in, in your particular case. Uh, does that mean that it's not helping you? And, and the answer is no. I think that uh, one of the things you have to recognize is if you are in the power of a certain kind of compulsion or addiction, as many of us are, uh, and I count myself among, uh, among your number here, then in, in some sense, you have to recognize that the, the moral duty here is not to try to be a hero and try to, without any support or assistance, carry out an, an act of discipline that you know you're doomed to fail at. This is why you, you don't tell an alcoholic to just white knuckle it. They need resources and support and structure to, to help them resist. And they generally need to avoid situations that tempt them to drink. So I think for internet compulsions, uh, many of us recognize that, look, this has wormed itself into my brain in a way that uh, I am not necessarily empowered right now uh, to turn off. So I need to use some external supports to help me do that. Um, and we don't generally judge people for, for that choice as somehow failing morally. Think about the ways that we use uh, our bathroom scale uh, to help motivate us to stay on track with our diet. And it's been shown that people who weigh themselves every day uh, are much more likely to be successful in losing weight or maintaining weight uh, than, than people who, who don't use a scale. Uh, there certainly are exceptions, though. There are people who can maintain their weight without any technological assistance at all, and great for them. But I think it depends upon the individual. And I don't think, you know, relying on technologies to, to help live a good life is, is part of what it means to be human. We've been doing that since we invented fire, uh, since we invented agriculture, since we invented hand axes. So I, I don't think there's any reason to stop now. But I do think that it's important to figure out, okay, if this isn't something where I'm exercising self-control and building up self-control, are there other areas of my life where I can? Where can I cultivate the virtue of self-control? If it's not with this particular device, fine. Then let it be somewhere else where I'm working to develop some discipline. Okay. Uh, another question, and this will probably be the last thing we talk about before we wrap up, and it, it's still on the theme of social media, is the impact of social media on the virtue of self-regard. So again, this is something you discuss in the book, the idea that a, a virtuous form of self-regard is important, but actually social media fuels a distorted self-perception. Either mm -hmm. it encourages an extreme form of narcissism or also through, you know, because people display their highlight reels, so to speak, from their lives on social mm -hmm. media, it engenders a lot of lack of self-worth or self-criticism that meant, or ang social anxiety or status anxiety that might have been there before. And actually, th you know, this is something that I, I worry about a little bit, not so much for myself, but for our students of mine do I see this being a particular problem for them, having grown up, grown up in an era where this has been normalized? So I think they get a distorted perception of what their friends are doing or what the, their social peers are up to. So and this kind of maybe ties back to the initial motivation for the book as well, which was this: the virtues or the practices that are needed for future generations dealing with these technological problems. So, I mean, how do, how do you think about that problem? Yeah, I think that's a really, really important one. And as you say, it's one that I talk a lot about in the book. And I think what we can say is that we need to figure out 
practices online and offline that help people develop a healthy relationship with their own self-image uh, and one uh, that has a reasonable degree of, of honesty attached to it. Of course, there's a fair amount of psychological research suggesting that it might not be good for us to have uh, a completely accurate self-image and that you know, looking at, our, at ourselves through rose-colored glasses at least a little bit might be psychologically protective. Uh, but uh, I, I think great distortions of self-image uh, on either end, the negative or the positive, are, are clearly not compatible with our social flourishing or our psychological flourishing. So I think we can think about how both technologies can uh, help us to be more honest with one another and how and, and honest with ourselves, uh, but also how we can do this offline. I mean, I, I think part of the whole point is is that a technology shouldn't be a replacement for parenting. They shouldn't be a replacement uh, for in-person friendships. Uh, they shouldn't be a replacement for mentoring relationships that happen, uh, you know, between uh, people and their their coaches, their teachers, their colleagues. Uh, there are all sorts of people in our lives uh, who we count on to help us understand better uh, who we are, what we're what we're succeeding at, what we're failing at. And we develop our own habits of self-reflection uh, to, to try to understand ourselves better. And I think we can cultivate those practices um, on the side and independently of our technological platforms and, and try to uh, round out some of the distortions. But I want to say one last thing about this, uh, and it connects with the, the prior point that we were making about technologies that help us uh, control our technological addictions and compulsions. Um, I'm certainly all for technologies that help mitigate the negative effects of other technologies, but I really want to get away from the idea uh, that that's all we can hope for. And I say this in the book, that uh, we shouldn't just be asking for technologies that can help mitigate or compensate or protect us from the debilitating effects of other technologies. We should be asking for technologies that don't debilitate us. We should be asking for technological platforms uh, that actually support our efforts to cultivate ourselves morally, uh, politically, physically. We should not be remaining satisfied with or settling for uh, technological band-aids for technological harms. We can always ask for better technologies, and we should. I, I end the book with a reflection on Star Trek and the division of a technologically advanced society that that uh, projects. And I don't think it's a naive vision. I think it's a hopeful and optimistic vision that, that we ought to still hold up a something, or something like it uh, as a demand. Uh, you know, just an example, you, you see in Star Trek a vision of a future where weapons have deliberately been designed to create an affordance for non-lethality, right? The stun setting, something that isn't possible in uh, most uh, 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 widely used weaponry today. And so I think, you know, Roddenberry really was a visionary in thinking about a future where technologies would be created to uh, afford uh, better and more moral choices. And I think we still have a right to demand that. Yeah, I think that's probably a good place to end it with, uh, you know, the positive vision of the future. You know, I, I'm we haven't really gotten into some of the depth of the book. We, we've only given one real concrete example and a little bit of the theory. So I encourage everyone to uh, read it and look at the other case studies that you have in the book. And I think it's it recently came out in paperback, so it's pretty yes. affordable.
So yeah, I, d- I definitely will recommend people to to pick it up, and I'll include a link to it on the blog post that accompanies this uh, podcast. But other than that, I just want to thank you for joining me for this conversation. Oh, thank you, John. It's been it's been a really wonderful chat, and I'm I'm really happy that you invited me to to, to join it.